Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, this morning as we stop to hear some serious words, would you please help each one of us to know our own minds that we might be able to hear what you have to say. Help us to know our own hearts that we might know how to respond. We ask, please, that you would have mercy on us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our purpose this morning is to understand and to heed the warning of Jesus about forgiveness, which is a very strange sentence. When was the last time that you were warned about forgiveness? We often talk about forgiveness at church. If you've been coming for any length of time, this is a word you will have heard us use quite a lot. And we often talk about the start of forgiveness, how it is that you can begin being forgiven. We talk about the means of forgiveness, how you can be forgiven. But it's not very often that we talk about the end of forgiveness. This concept that there might be a moment where forgiveness stops. We talk about the start of forgiveness, right? You, you come to God, what you need is to be forgiven. We, we all start from this state of being sinners before a holy God, of being black before whiteness, of being dark before light and needing to be forgiven. We, we talk about that all the time. We talk about the means of forgiveness, that what we need is God himself to pay for us, which he does in Jesus. Jesus dies in our place, we can be forgiven. But if all of that is born out of forgiveness, relationship with God, righteousness, heaven, eternity with Him, then to think that there might be a moment where forgiveness stops is serious and terrifying. That God might say, that person will not be forgiven. In fact, it's, it's eternally serious. There's nothing more serious than this. And so our purpose is to understand what does Jesus mean when he says they will not be forgiven and to heed that warning. Now what are we going to make of it? Well, we need to start back at the beginning of our passage, at this event that precipitates it all. And so you look, you'll find it helpful to have a Bible open, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read through some of it again as we go. We're not going to quite cover all of it in depth, but we'll do enough to understand it. And it all begins with this event that is both amazing and completely run-of-the-mill. Have a look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus. Jesus healed him so that the man could both speak and see. Now, what a normal everyday occurrence, right? <laughs> well, actually, for Jesus, it was. This is exactly what has been happening time and time and time again. Why were the crowds there? Because this is what Jesus does. The crowds had gathered because he'd been healing the sick and casting out demons and teaching with amazing authority. Perfectly normal. But also amazing, wonderful, supernatural. To, to, to our modern mind, almost inconceivable. I mean, there's the whole question about the demons in the first place, right? A demon-possessed man. Really? Like, are there, are there actually these spiritual beings and... I mean, was it just a superstitious view of illness? We now know, we have modern medicine, and so we understand the connections from brain and body and nervous system and eyes and all the rest of it. And so they just gave it the label of demon, let's say. 
Now, I think in our society today, there'll be plenty of people for whom the idea of the spiritual world, the occult, the demonic, is perfectly normal. They, they, in fact, there's a new wave of the new age that's coming for people who consider that to be absolutely real and true. And then there's many of us who have more of the sceptical kind of inclination, who are much more inclined to try and find physical explanations for anything that happens along these lines. But whichever camp you fall in, it's a little bit of a problem, because what is happening here is clearly supernatural. Whether you believe in the demons or not, I take it we should, because they're in the Bible... But whether you do or you don't, what happens is supernatural. For who else can look at a man who was blind and unable to speak and can heal him? Not not like, I'm going to pass you some drugs, take three of these a day, come back in a week, and if you're feeling worse, go to the hospital. Not that kind of healing. The kind of healing that has the crowd go, hang on a second, he couldn't see a moment ago. I I know he couldn't. I did that thing where you put your hand in front of his eyes and you go, and he didn't flinch, right? I knew he was blind. And now he can see. He couldn't speak before. And now all of a sudden, he's... This, this isn't the televangelist, right? The, I'm going to pull your leg and make it look like it's gotten longer or I'm going to whisper a word and you can tell me. No, this is a man who they knew was clearly blind and mute. And Jesus healed him. Supernaturally. There's more at play here than a materialistic view of the world allows for. Even his enemies, right, even the the, the Pharisees who were there, they recognised this was supernatural. Have a look down at verse 24. This man drives out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, by the ruler of the demons. They didn't question what had happened. There was no scepticism about the reality of the event. The life of Jesus was a life marked by the miraculous. Whether you're reading the Bible or the other sources that exist, that he did it was unquestioned. But the question then was, By whose power? If what Jesus did was supernatural, okay, let's just, let's give that for a moment, okay, sure. He supernaturally healed a man. He supernaturally cast out a demon. How? How can a human being do that? Well, look at what the crowd say. Their response was one of amazement. Verse 23, all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? (laughs) it's okay that was a normal response for them probably unusual for us right if we have a guy who is clearly supernatural in front of us right someone starts Aaron starts flying all of a sudden and we think oh my goodness right wow is he the son of David that's not quite what we would say but for them sorry it's Oliver the son of David (laughs) that's right (laughs) they were waiting for a king to bring God's power That's what Israel was waiting for. It had been promised a long time ago. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you want to. God promised King David that one of his sons would be a king with God's own power, an eternal kingdom. And they're thinking, here is God's own power. Is this it? Is this the king? They knew what it meant. These weren't parlor tricks. They knew the man. Right? This, was, this would have been one of their friends. This man was brought to Jesus. They saw the reality of this man healed. Could this truly be the king? But the Pharisees had a slightly different response, didn't they? Verse 24, again, when they heard this, 
I take it when they heard this cry of the people, could this be the son of David? When they heard this, could this finally be the king? They're like, we don't like Jesus. I don't know if you remember last week, right? We do not like Jesus. They said, no, 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 don't be silly, guys. He's not the king. He's driving out demons by the power of Satan. We've got to get him. They heard the the crowds. They tried to downplay it. But again, let me just point out, they don't question what happened, that it was a supernatural healing. They accept that. The question is, by whose power? It was impossible to deny what Jesus did. But um, perhaps a little bit like us, when you don't like something, you try and explain it away, don't you? No matter how absurd or prejudiced or just downright rebellious your accusation might be. They came, these Pharisees came with preconceptions, with ideas that they'd already formulated. Jesus cannot be from God, therefore the only source of power left to him, it must be that Satan is casting out Satan. And Jesus very kindly and for our sake very helpfully points out to them how ridiculous their accusation is and he points out those three things it's absurd it's prejudiced it's rebellious have a look again verse 25 look at how absurd their claim was knowing their thoughts jesus told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction no city or house divided against itself will stand if satan drives out satan He's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? I mean, what, are, you, are you guys dumb or something? Like, what do you, what do you mean I'm, I'm driving out Satan by the power of Satan? That makes no sense. Why would Satan do that? It's like, yes, I'm going to enact my own plan by undermining my plan. Ha! That'll show you all. What? Satan shooting himself in the foot for what purpose? What I'm going to do is I'm going to go and seize people and possess them and they're going to be mine and then I'm going to cast myself out of them. Yeah, it's absurd. I'm going to build a house by blowing up the foundations. It doesn't work. It's prejudiced. Their accusation that Satan was casting out Satan. Look at verse 27. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? They will be your judges, right? The disciples of these Pharisees were going around trying to cast out demons. They were trying to do the same thing that Jesus had just done. If, if you wanna, you're feeling like a bit of a chuckle at some point, go and read Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 17, um, where it tells a story of some of the disciples of these Pharisees who were going around trying to cast out demons. And the demons go, who are you? And beat the guys up. Like, it's just a hilarious... And, and possibly more, the, the men end up having to run away naked from this event. Like it's... But note the hypocrisy. Your disciples are going around casting out demons and you say, that's the work of God. I come along and cast out demons and you say, oh, that's the work of Satan. Which one is it? They're prejudiced. I want to hate you. So therefore, I'll ignore the inconsistency. In the end, most of our problems and our accusations and our rejections of Jesus are born out of rebellion. Verse 28, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, 
and the kingdom of God has come upon you, that there is no other option. If the power that I'm exercising right now is the power of God, then what has come among you is the kingdom of God. But verse 29, how, how can someone enter into a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. That is such an important sentence right there. Because you might be here today thinking of yourself as a fence-sitter. I don't understand that saying. It's very uncomfortable to sit on fences. But anyway, right, you, you, know, you know what it means. You, you're sitting kind of halfway. You're neither in nor out. You're just, you're just biding your time. I want to see who comes out the winner. That's going to sit on the fence for a while. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really with Jesus. I mean, I, you know, I know he's kind of there and maybe I do a few bits and pieces, but I'm, I'm not really in on this Jesus thing. But I, look, I mean, I'm certainly not in on the Satan thing either, right? I'm, ooh, whew, no, no. Right, fence, fence comfy. I'm happy here. I can ignore it all. The problem with sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus is the same problem that our church has with its fence. Do you know the problem that our fence has? It's in the wrong spot. The fence is a metre in the wrong side. So you think you're sitting on the fence, you think you're sitting on the boundary, when actually you're a metre deep into the enemy's territory. The fence is on Satan's side. I'm sorry if that's impolite and a bit confronting, but that's what Jesus says. You cannot sit on the fence. If you are not for me, if you're not all in on Jesus, then you really are on Satan's side. You really are against him. I can't push that analogy too far because the fence is on our side, so it doesn't quite work to say the fence is on Satan's side. Um, <clears throat> you'll forgive me that one. Jesus points it out to them very clearly. You, you are saying that the work of God is in fact the work of Satan. Your accusation is absurd, it's prejudiced, it's rebellious, and that brings us to the very heart of the matter. What is it that will not be forgiven? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Therefore, verse 31, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, I'd be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Do you see what the Pharisees were doing? They were looking at what was clearly, obviously, unmistakably, powerfully the work of God and calling that not the work of God. They were looking at what Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, no, no, that's not the Holy Spirit doing that work. It's not God doing that work. Well, it must be Satan. There's nothing else left. I don't think Jesus' words here are so much a warning as they are a description. If you are somebody who, like the Pharisees, has seen everything of Jesus and calls that not the work of God, then there will be no forgiveness for you. You can't look at Jesus and say he isn't from God and brings forgiveness from God and the power of God and the kingdom of God. No, that's, none of that is true and still find forgiveness. The Pharisees, they had the best proof that any human being in the history of the world has ever had. If you've ever thought to yourself, oh, I, I just wish that God would, by way of proving himself to you, 
For the Pharisees, God did. Whatever it is that you would fill in that sentence, God did. They, they had had the very oracles of God. They had the whole Old Testament where for thousands of years, God had spoken to them, preparing them for Jesus. They had all of that. They had the life of Jesus himself, three years walking among them, teaching them, showing them by his power. The guy walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, healed the blind, like anything you could imagine, he did. They had the very voice of God himself speak audibly into creation to say, he's the one, like if you've ever said, well, go on, God, just at least give me some words. They had it. No, no, it's not by the power of God, it's the power of Satan. What more could God do for them? Now, it's a very stark warning to them, wasn't it? And I take it it's a warning to us as well. If you look upon what is unmistakably the work of God, if you, if you get to a point where you have heard it all, <clears throat> you're sitting there today and you think, actually, oh, I, do, I do know. I, I, I understand what it's all about. <clears throat> I've asked my questions, I've heard the answers, they've been good ones. I've tasted some of the family of God and the life of God. I kind of know what it's about and I see it and I understand it. If you get to that point and still say, but it's, it's, nah, it's not for me. No, no, that's not, no, yeah, I'm not all in on Jesus. If you get to that point and will not repent, then what else do you want? If you have not been forgiven then, Jesus' words are, you will not be forgiven. What more can God do? What more can he give you? If you don't respond at the moment of God's greatest witness to you, you will never respond in faith. Oh, by all means, laugh at me, says Jesus. Right? Blaspheme the Son of Man. Call me a, a nobody from Nazareth. Look at me as a, as a weak man, he says, as the Son of Man who walks around. By, by all means, do that. But don't look at the work of God and call it not the work of God. If in the fullness of knowledge you reject, what else is left? Now, I take the rest of our passage really kind of fills that idea out. It, it's just three pictures to help us flesh it out further. I'll go through them really quickly. He talks first about trees and fruit. The, the sort of tree you are will produce the sort of fruit that you are. If you're a bramble, if you're a bush, if you're a thistle and thorns, that's all that's going to come. If you're a fruit tree, fruit will come. It doesn't matter how much rain falls on the thistle bush, it's not going to produce apples. No, it'll just keep producing more thorns. Well, what about the sign? They came up to him and said, well, go on, show us some proof. What are you talking about? How about the one I just did? All right, fine. You want signs? You're not going to get one. You'll get one more. You're going to get one more sign. You kill me and three days later I'll be alive. You kill me and my resurrection will prove everything else that I've said. Go on, how about that sign? But you know what? You still won't believe, even with that sign. That's a sign that you have, by the way. Or the spirits, right? You cast one out, the house is empty. Fill it with good things, because if you don't, you're going to be worse off than before. You've got a moment right now, Israel, to accept God again and come back. Otherwise, seven more will return and you'll be worse than you were before. It's a sobering warning, isn't it? 
Let me, let me bring it home a little bit for us. Can I speak to you first if you are a Christian? Can I speak to you if you are somebody who is all in on Jesus? I'll say four things to you. Firstly, don't be scared. I, I have met Christians who off the back of this passage live in fear. This isn't talking about, oops, the ah, slip of the tongue. I, I said the words and now I will not be forgiven. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about a moment where you just, oh no, I, oh no, I thought it, ah, yeah, I'm out, I'm done, I'm gone, there's no hope, I can't come back again. I have met Christians who live there, and I, it might be you, and I hope it's not, if it is, don't be scared, it's not talking about that. Remember, it's talking about seeing the work of God and calling it not the work of God. Seeing the work that Jesus does to bring us forgiveness and saying, no, that's the work of Satan, that's not the work of God, rejecting Jesus. Don't be scared. But secondly, do be careful. There are also, I have sadly met plenty of Christians today who deny a whole lot of Jesus. And the only way I think you can deny it is by thinking that it's not of God. Ah, the miracles? Now I'm a bit too sceptic. Let's just get rid of them. The whole spiritual stuff, ah, superstitious nonsense. What do you mean he came back to life again? No, that's silly. People don't come back to life, so Jesus couldn't have. He's an example to us, a model. We should follow him in love. You've actually denied a whole lot of Jesus and said that the things that are the work of God aren't the work of God and I'm sorry but right now you're in a really dangerous place. Don't be scared but do be careful. Trust Jesus. I think that's the, that's the best antidote to this. Keep trusting Jesus. You keep trusting Jesus, then you will keep declaring that Jesus is the work of God. Keep trusting in him. But thirdly, there's, there's a hard thing to this passage, isn't there, for, for Christians? I think the pain in this passage comes when we think of those we love. That's the real pain. Is this passage talking about them? Could it, could it be that this person, my family member, my friend, my, whom I love so dearly, could, could this be them? There will be no forgiveness for them. There is some comfort in this passage for us. Verses 46 to 50 are interesting, aren't they? Who are my family? His mother and brothers are right there at the door. Just by the way, note his brothers, so the, the teaching that Mary didn't have any other children, well, right there. But who are they, Jesus says? Who's my family? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. So even as we feel that pain for those we love, that we yearn to see saved, we know that God is building a family with us in it. And so he is building a family, it's for Jesus, but it will also then mean it is for us. We feel the pain for our loved ones, even as we rejoice in what God is creating through us and for us. But so then fourthly, can I say to you, if you're a Christian, please be diligent. This isn't an excuse for fatalism. Well, I guess if they're not going to be forgiven, they're not going to be forgiven, right? We, we, we don't know, okay? This, this is a reality from God. We might have a sense of it, but at the end of the day, we, it's not on us to judge them in that way. So be diligent. Pray, share the gospel, call out to the God who does the impossible. All right, what about if you're not a Christian? What about if you're on the fence? Well, the fence isn't where you think it is. Let's just start with that. The fence isn't on the boundary. This is a really, really, really serious warning. Please don't get to this stage. 
Don't get to the point where you've had all your questions answered. You've been part of the church and the the Christian scene for years and you've been blessed by it and, and felt the joy of God's people and you've tasted some of the goodness of belonging to God. But you've never repented of your sin. You've never put your trust in Jesus. Because if you've gotten to the point where you've had it all and you've still said no... What more can God do? I think we, uh, we have a different way of calling the work of God not the work of God, of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I don't know that, few, that many of us are going to go around saying, oh, Satan did that. I don't think that's us. It may be, but I don't think it is. No, we, we do it in a much more subtle way. We just ignore God. That's how we call it the work of Satan. If you believe it to be the work of God, how on earth would you ignore it? By your actions, you show you do. No, no, it's it's the work of of Christians, malicious, frauds. Christians made it up. It's It's not real. Please heed the warning. Look, be honest, okay? If there's still issues, well, that's fine. Work through them. It's okay. I'm not saying you're not allowed to have questions. You're not allowed to have doubts. That, you know, it's okay. Work through it by all means. But please make sure that your reasons for not trusting Jesus aren't absurd or prejudiced or rebellious like theirs were. Rather, instead, can I invite you today to come and join Jesus' family? Those who do the will of God. And what is the will of God? To believe the one he sent. To trust Jesus. Let's let's go back to talking about the start of forgiveness. Forgiveness begins with you coming to Jesus as he has died that you might be forgiven and saying to him, please, will you take my guilt? Will you take my burden so that I can be free and belong to you? Can I tell you to do that today? Honestly, like the, 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 the weight of this passage, this warning says that there must come a moment in time where you make a decision, where you admit your sin, you believe in Jesus and you commit your life to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and we praise you for your justice. You are a God in whom there is no darkness. You will do what is right. Today we entrust ourselves to you as the judge of all, knowing that in Jesus you offer forgiveness and outside of Jesus there is condemnation. Father, help those who know and trust Jesus to continue to know and trust Jesus and help those who have not yet made that decision to make it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.